Welcome to the Alpha Ministries podcast. Alpha Ministries is a recovery church. Our mission is to teach individuals and institutions to recognize and apply the gospel of grace, building stronger families and communities. Join us today as Pastor John Glenn teaches on biblical self-awareness. You will learn what God has done for us that we could not do for ourselves and what it means to be fully adopted into the family of God. We hope you are encouraged and built up in the faith. If you have any questions or comments, be sure to email us and look for some information about us in the show notes. Here's John. To know that we are worthy is probably one of the most important and critical things that you and I have to face on a daily basis. To know not only are our physical needs met, but also that our personal needs are met. That's what I want us to focus our attention on in this session. How is it that we can know for sure that our personal needs are met? What is it that God has provided for us to meet those personal needs in his son Jesus? Jesus, as you know, has already made a great claim. He made a, a claim that no other prophet or teacher in human history had ever made. He claimed, first of all, to be God himself. He did not claim to be close to God. He did not claim to be another good teacher about God. He claimed, in fact, to be one with the Father. He claimed that he himself was the very essence of God as revealed in, him, in human form. This claim also generalizes to we who are in Christ, to we who have come to be in close personal relationship with Jesus Christ as our own personal Savior. We, too, are one with him. I want us to talk about what that means in terms of our worth here this afternoon. We have the chart back on the board again concerning our personal worth. What that means, in essence, is that we are secure as persons. We are significant as persons, meaning that we are loved, accepted, and forgiven to be secure. We are important. Our life has meaning and purpose to it, and we are adequate in order to be significant. When I worked for a Christ-centered recovery program called RAFA, we had a little declaration that we usually would share in group meetings and so on, and I've shared that declaration with others. It goes something like this. Because of Christ's redemption, I am an awesome spirit being of magnificent worth as a person. Now, it goes on to talk about the fact that we are secure in God's love, his acceptance, and his forgiveness, and addresses the fact that we are significant in God's plan for our life and his eternal purpose for our life, and that we are adequate in his power. This declaration is a nice-sounding little declaration, and you can actually, I had it printed out on cards and put it up on the refrigerator in the house and put it in different places in my office and so on, and, and this little ref, this little declaration actually would encourage me on a personal basis. But it's only encouraging to the extent that you believe it's true. It's only encouraging to the extent that you actually know beyond a shadow of a doubt that what it says is true about you. What I want us to do this afternoon is to look at the biblical basis for why we can believe that we are awesome spirit beings of magnificent worth as a person so that we can enjoy the personal security and significance that comes from that as revealed to us from the Word of God. 
Now it's clear from our story concerning the feeding of the 5,000 that Jesus' concern, his desire above all things, is to make us secure and significant. His desire is to give us the worth that we crave. And just as he met the physical needs for hunger and thirst, he tells us by using the same terminology that if any man hunger, let him come unto me. If any man thirst, let him come unto me. What he's inviting us to do, obviously, is not just to go to him when we need a drink of water or go to him when we need another lunch, but rather to come to him for the hunger in our soul for worth as a person, to come to him for the thirst that we have for significance. It's to that issue now that we want to turn our attention. How is it that Jesus actually makes us worthy in him? The key phrase in this that I want to share with you is what I just used, in him. I want to put this on the board for you and illustrate to you something that is spoken of in John chapter 14. On the night before he was crucified, Jesus met with his disciples in the upper room. And it was in that upper room that he met the most uh, insecure and insignificant group of men, perhaps in the New Testament. The reason they were insecure and insignificant, particularly on that night, is because for three and a half years they had been following Jesus. He had called them, you recall, and he, he called them to minister with him. And, of course, they thought because they were called, especially chosen out by Jesus to be disciples, and he actually named them apostles or messengers, that they were worthy because of their calling. But there was something more going on in their mind. If they viewed him as being the king, and he said he was the king of the Jews, if they viewed him as setting up and having all authority over this world, a kingdom here, then you can rest assured that those boys were thinking about their security in the future by hanging out with him. You see, what they understood was as the king, Jesus was going to be secure. And if they were close to him, they also would be secure. So they were trusting him in a sense already, infantile as it was, they were trusting him for their security by being in close association with him. But the problem was the night before he was crucified, he told them, I'm going to leave you. And like I said to the Jews, where I'm going, you can't come. And of course, this threatened their security immediately. It threatened their sense of significance immediately because they thought his leaving would mean that they would no longer be secure or significant. And Jesus dealt with them on that night in various ways that we'll discuss later in our series. But the one thing that I want you to understand now is that he gave them a tremendous promise in John chapter 14 and verse 20. He gave them a tremendous promise that would bring not only security and significance to them, but also to all of us for all of time. He said in that verse, John 14, 20, at that day you shall know that I am in the Father and that you are in me and that I am in you. Now this is a tremendous statement a powerful statement that we need to take the time to understand. In this session, what we're concerned with is, again, realizing how it is that Jesus actually makes us secure and significant by our relationship with him. Let me diagram for you on the board what Jesus was actually saying. Sometimes a visual representation will help us to understand. He said, first of all, at that day you shall know that I am in the Father. So we're going to draw a circle up here. 
and label this simply the Father. Now, I don't know all the things that Jesus had in mind at the moment he spoke those words, I am in the Father, but I know that whatever we celebrate as being the very crux issue of our, our Christianity was involved in that, because you see, Jesus was not just another prophet, he was not just another teacher, he was not just some miracle worker that, that traipsed around Jerusalem, he said he was God. Therefore, he said he and the Father were one. So whatever else he meant when he said, I am in the Father, Jesus meant to describe his relationship with the Father. And so we're going to put Jesus in the Father here, meaning he is one with the Father, meaning whatever's true of the Father is true of him. Frequently, he would say to people, the words that I speak, they're not my words. I speak only what I hear the Father say. I'm representing the Father because I and the Father are one. The works that I do, they're not my works. I do only what I see my Father doing. So frequently, he made reference to the fact that his union with the Father was so close that he didn't do anything, he didn't say anything without the Father being involved. Now, we can all understand that, I think, at least to some degree on a theological level, we can understand that Jesus being in the Father means that he and the Father are one. But see, here's where it gets good. He didn't just stop when he said that I am in the Father. He went on to say, and you, you are in me. This is a marvelous statement. Because what it means is that whatever is true about Jesus being in the Father is true about us being in him. As he was one with the Father, so we are one with him. A tremendous promise. So let's put ourselves in this picture here. By ourselves, I'm talking about those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, who have accepted him as our own personal Savior. He says, we are in him. I'm going to have faith for you here. I'm going to put you there, all right? We are in Jesus, who is in the Father. This is a marvelous thing. But he didn't stop there. He carried it one step further, didn't he? At that day you shall know that I am in the Father, and that you are in me, and that I am in you. We're going to add one other little circle here in our concentric circles. We're going to put Jesus again in us. So here we are. We're kind of the donut there. We are in Jesus, who is in the Father, and Jesus is not only, we are not only in him, but he is in us. Now this whole concept that we're talking about is what's referred to theologically as our union with Christ. The fact that we've become one. As I've said earlier, this is the, the most marvelous thing about the gospel, the good news of what God has done for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. He's made us one with Jesus. And let's just talk about the personal benefits of that for a moment. Being in Christ and having Christ in us, being one with him, satisfies us on a personal way in this fashion. In order for us to be worthy, we know that we have to be secure. Now we need to ask ourselves, was Jesus secure in what the Father had done for him 
and who he made him to be? Certainly Jesus was secure. Is Jesus significant? Certainly Jesus is significant. Then if Jesus is secure and significant, being in the Father, then you and I, being in him, are also secure and significant. You see, the basis of our worth as persons is our union with Christ. Now, this is not the only place in the Bible this is talked about. I just use this because of the heat of the moment, and we'll come back to it later in our studies, that these disciples were under tremendous pressure. They did not feel secure. When Jesus said, I'm leaving you, it was a very dark hour. It was not just dark because Jesus was leaving. It was dark because everybody in Jerusalem wanted to kill him. It was dark because everybody was plotting already how they were going to put Jesus to death. And, of course, those who were following him would at the very least be put into prison. And so it was a very scary hour. You talk about being insecure. Now, these boys were insecure that night when Jesus said, I'm leaving you. And it was also a very serious moment when Jesus said, as I told the Jews, you can't come with me now. Not only am I leaving you, but you're going to have to stay here. Now, Peter, if you know the story, fought that. And he, he said, well, Lord, I'm going to go with you. I don't care where you go. You go to prison, you go to jail. Uh, they come after you. I'm going to go with you. And he went on to say, now, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the night is over. He knew more about Peter than Peter did. But the point I'm making is that Jesus, that night, wanted to assure these boys with something that would stick with them. And so he told them, at that day, you shall know. Now, what day he was referring to was the day when he would breathe on them the Spirit, the day when the Spirit would click on as light bulbs in their mind the reality and the truth of what the Word of God tells us, that we have been made one with Jesus. We have come uh, into him and he into us. So let me give you a couple scriptural um, illustrations of this same sort of thing so you don't see it's taken out of context here. The Bible also talks about our union with Christ and other analogies, besides what Jesus just promised here about these circles. It also speaks of it, for instance, when Paul uh, gives us an analogy in Ephesians chapter 1, at the end of the chapter, about us being the house of God. Jesus is one with a believer, just like the foundation is one with a building. When you're driving around in town and you look out and you see buildings, houses, residential homes, or huge skyscrapers, normally you don't separate the foundation from the building in your mind. As a matter of fact, most of the time you don't even see the foundation. What you see is the, the superstructure that's built on that foundation. So you can't really separate the foundation from the building. And this is another biblical analogy of our union with Christ. We are members of the body of Christ are living stones, Peter calls us, that are built in a holy temple together, called the church, that is resting on the foundation of Jesus Christ, being the chief cornerstone and the apostles. So we are one as a building is one with its foundation. We are one with Jesus. Likewise, he used a little later on in the upper room when he left that upper room and actually went outside the, the city gates of Jerusalem went out the eastern gate and down a little valley across the brook Kidron and into the, the garden. He saw some, some uh, vines growing there, some grapevines, and he used that as an object lesson to teach them about their union again, affirming them. He said, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit except it abide in the vine. So we are one with Christ in the same way 
that the branch and the vine are one. Likewise, he mentions the physical analogy of the head and the body. Paul mentions this in his letters frequently in Colossians and also in Ephesians, that Jesus Christ is the head and we, the members of the body, or the church, are comprising the various particular members of that body, are one. Just like we don't separate our head from our body, we are one. So all of these analogies that I'm giving you here, and by the way, there are many more in the Old Testament and elsewhere in the scriptures. If you start looking for them, you'll find a very rich study in looking for ways the Bible tells us how we are one with God. All of these things lead up to this one idea that is, is meant to give us assurance, personal assurance, that we are worthy, that our personal needs are met because we are one with Jesus, who is one with the Father. Now let's just take a moment to consider some of the things that would cause us to doubt whether or not we're one with the Father. Probably the single biggest issue that comes in our minds, the single biggest thing that causes us to doubt the good news of our security and significance is when bad things happen to us, when we suffer in one way or another. Frequently, people believe that God has, in some sense, forsaken them, that God has left them when they have to go through a difficult time, whether it be with their families or their job situations or health problems or financial situations, whatever the problem is, we typically get the idea that God is no longer with us anymore. He's no longer around, that he has forsaken us, and therefore we are no longer secure or significant. Now, of course, Jesus, as we've been discussing here, has actually been dealing with men who are under a very adverse circumstance to begin with, and so his point in giving them this information is to assure them. But when we enter into times of suffering, when we experience trials of one sort or another, we can often get the idea that God's not with us and that he has allowed something bad to happen to us and therefore we are insecure or we are not important, we've lost meaning and purpose or we're not adequate to face these issues so we are insignificant. You all see how those needs are threatened? Every time something bad happens to us, our needs get threatened. So let's just take that in accordance with what Jesus said to illustrate something here. Let's take a trial of any sort. I'll just put stress down just to illustrate any kind of a problem, any kind of a trial that comes into our life. We experience stress. When it comes into our life, notice what it has to pass through. First of all, it has to pass through God the Father, doesn't it? And the scripture tells us point blank in several different places that God will never allow anything to happen to you, anything to happen to you that's not for your own good. Anything. Now, I know that immediately when something bad happens to me, I think, oh, there's an exception clause here. <laughs> that means that this thing that's happened to me is not for my own good. But you see, that's a struggle of unbelief that I'm, I'm fighting at that point. God has promised that he is faithful and he will, with the temptation, provide a way of escape. Now, he has promised that all things, even that stress, whatever form it is, whatever trial we're suffering, works together for our good. But you see, the point I'm making is in order for it to get to you in the first place, in order for that stress to actually reach you, it's got to pass, first of all, through the Father. And then that stress has to go through Jesus. 
who we're told in Romans chapter 8, is continually at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us continuously. And then once it per passes permission from Jesus, then it reaches you. But when it reaches you, notice what else it has to deal with. It has to deal with Christ in you, the hope of glory. It has to deal with Christ in you, uh, the person of the Holy Spirit, that comforter, who is continually making intercession for you with groanings which cannot be uttered. Many people have asked me in counseling situations, where is God in this? And they describe a, a very difficult situation. Recently, I, I listened to a nurse in Vietnam give her testimony of all the suffering that she uh, saw firsthand, working hour after hour in an evacuation hospital in country. And she gave a little testimony about this, and she asked this very question. She brought it out. She said, a lot of people ask, where was God in Vietnam? And her answer was very significant. Her answer was that he was right there in the middle of it in the loving relationships that he established between the people who were suffering. He was right there in the very midst of it. And the scripture is very clear that God is in the middle of our trials. He doesn't meet us on the outside hoping that we'll get through. He's not standing up here wringing his hands wondering if we're going to screw up again when we go through this trial. He's not worried about what it's going to do to us because, you see, God already knows the beginning from the end. And so God, knowing our position in Christ, knowing that we are in him and in his son and that his son is in us by his spirit, knows that we are secure in his love. He knows that we are significant in his plan, and he's so sure about it, he's written it down in black and white right here in this little book we call the Bible. He is absolutely so sure that we are secure and significant in his plan, he's given us in black and white statements that says so to that effect. Now, our job in the Alpha Series is to study those statements. Our job in the Alpha Series is to see what, in fact, God says is true about us, about our security and our significance. Because how can we believe in something we've not heard? And how should we hear except we study it? And so what we're looking at now, and the reason I'm sharing this with you, is so that you can understand what God says is true about you. Because you're one with Christ. Because not only are you in him, and he's in you, and you're both in the Father, you are secure in God's love. You are significant in God's plan. You see, when that stress comes into your life, it has to, first of all, be permitted by God the Father. Now, if he's not in charge, by the way, this is a little side point. I better deal with this. If he's not in charge, if God the Father's not in charge of your life, who is? Either you, or you might think Satan, or other people, or God's in charge of your life. And remember, he's in charge of your life not only when good things happen. A lot of religious Christians like to like to give God all the credit for all the good and Satan all the credit for all the bad. Listen, if Satan gets all the credit for all the bad that comes into your life, then Satan becomes God. Because you see, God is sovereign. That means he does everything according to his own plan. And if he's allowed something to come into your life that's bad, that we don't like, it's for a good reason that we have yet to see. If he's allowed something bad to come into your life, and Jesus has allowed something bad, who loved you so much he died for you, then got, he's got a good reason for it too. And when it comes into your life and it actually reaches you, 
And where is God? Is he just standing back watching? No, not at all. Romans 8 again. The Spirit continually makes intercession for us, for we know not what to pray for as we ought. You know, when something bad comes into my life, I know what to pray for. Get this out of my life, God. Okay, but he said, no, you don't know what God is doing with that. We know not what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Do you ever stop and think about where those groanings came from? Those groanings come from the fact that God himself, through the Spirit living inside of you, is feeling the same pain you're feeling. That's why the Spirit groans within you. So where's God in the middle of your suffering? Right smack dab in the middle, more than you're aware of. He's in the middle of your suffering. Now, I just use that because typically suffering is what causes us to doubt the reality of the gospel in our own lives. Suffering is what causes us to doubt God's word when it says we are secure and significant in God's love and his plan for our life. Suffering and pain in our life is the biggest battle we fight. And we'll talk a lot more about that in later studies. Right now, what I want us to look at, again, is the fact that this promise of the union that we have with Jesus is the basis for our worth. And it's important that I make this distinction now for those of you who are watching this on videotape. It's especially important that you understand this as well as our studio audience, that there is a vast difference between what I'm sharing right now and what has been labeled as New Age teaching. There's a big difference. You see, the New Age philosophy, which is, by the way, not new. It's been around since the Garden, which is about 6,000 years old, so it's not really new. But the New Age philosophy tries to get about the same concept of the fact that we are worthy by saying, you're worthy because you're a human being. Because you're born as a human being, you're worthy. And what it does is it elevates the human condition, in a sense, to be God. Now, the difference between what the New Age philosophy teaches and what I'm teaching here in the Alpha series needs to be clearly understood. What I am teaching here is not that you're worthy because you're a human being. As a matter of fact, I'll share this with you out of Romans later, that human beings are born sinful and depraved. Human beings are born not only feeling worthless because they are worthless, but acting worthless as well. This is where all the corruption in the human condition comes from. But what I'm teaching here is that we can obtain worth only by grace through faith in what God makes us to be in his son, Jesus. You see, that's the difference between New Age philosophy and the gospel of Jesus Christ. I know it's very close, but the enemy wants to, he doesn't use something that's not close to counterfeit us. He doesn't, he doesn't use something that doesn't look good or sound good uh, to tempt us or lead us astray. He uses something that's very close to counterfeit the truth of the gospel. And the New Age philosophy a humanistic movement and so on, will teach us that we are worthy because we're simply human beings. All human beings are simply. The truth of the Word of God is radically different than that. The truth of the Word of God says your worth is based entirely and only upon your union with Christ, who is worthy. You see, the reason we can enjoy any kind of worth at all is because Jesus is worthy. 
And by the miraculous operation of the Holy Spirit, he brings us into union with that one who is worthy so that what's true of that worthy Jesus is true of us. That's what makes us worthy. And the gospel, the good news, is that God does that for us by grace through faith. Again, I'll elaborate more on this later in another, in another session, but it's important that you understand that you cannot make yourself worthy. The humanistic movement says just believe that you're already worthy. But there are other religionists who say you need to make yourself worthy. And the way you make yourself worthy is to do this or to do that or to quit doing these other things and start doing these, these other things and then you'll be worthy. Now that's anti-biblical as well. That is against the gospel. You are worthy not based on your own merit, not based on your own works. You are worthy based entirely upon the grace of God and you receive that worth, worth as a free gift of God through faith. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, our worth then as persons is entirely based on what God has done for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. And how we receive that is simply to believe it. Remember what Jesus said to those men who followed him for a free lunch? He said, this is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he has sent. What are we to believe in? We're to believe that he satisfies our deepest personal needs for security and significance by allowing us to be joined inseparably to him. The writer to the, the Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 2 that Jesus, having become the captain of our salvation, was made perfect by the things he suffered so that he could bring us to glory and, and bringing many sons to, to glory, he actually declares his identity to us in the midst of the congregation. And he is not ashamed to call you his brethren. He is not ashamed to call you his brother or sister because you are in his family, because you are one with him. You have the same father when you're born of the spirit that he does. And therefore, you are worthy as a member of his family. Now, all the way through the scriptures, if you understand this, you can go all the way back to Genesis. And you can see through every portion of the scripture, the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, the main burden of the revelation of the word of God is to teach us this one fact, that we are worthy because of what God has made us to be in Christ. And again, this is something that we're going to have to continue to believe on a daily basis. This is not something that we're going to accept one time in the course of this session or another session. It's something that's going to be challenged every day. Now, let me just pause at this point and, and switch with you here to look to what else we can trust besides Jesus and our union with him and the Father to make us worthy. I like this illustration. I use it frequently to illustrate how we've all been conditioned to trust everything and everyone except Jesus to make us worthy. I want to talk about how we trust the all-American God of money. I call him the God of escrow. Give him a little pet name. The God of escrow can actually make us worthy. Did you know that? Or at least give us a false sense of worth. Let's suppose that after our session today, you decided you were going to go down to a store downtown here, and you're going to buy yourself a lotto ticket. 
because after all, this week, you see there's going to be a lottery, and it's not one of those little four or five million dollar or eight million dollar lotteries this week. You see, it's an 80 or 90 million dollar lottery. Okay, so you say, okay, for that, I'll cough up a buck. And so you go and you buy yourself a lotto ticket. And lo and behold, Saturday night comes around and they draw out your number. Now, you are $90 million richer than you were. $90 million now. Now let's just run through our personal needs on this. Escrow has blessed you immeasurably. He's given you $90 million. Okay? Let's just ask ourselves a few questions about this. Would you be loved? Would not every person you ever did know call you the next day and tell you and affirm over and over and over again how much they loved you and how much you've always meant to them? You bet you'd be loved. You'd have relatives you never knew you had. Why, all of us here would love you, wouldn't we? <laughs> we would all want to be your best friend. Would you be accepted? Sure you'd be accepted. You could go anywhere you wanted to. People would accept you in. There wouldn't be any exclusive club to keep you out, would there? You would have total acceptance. Would you be forgiven of those little minor transgressions and so on that you've done in the past? Well, people would be flocking to you to tell you how much they forgive you of all the things you've done to hurt them. Of course you'd be forgiven. Would you be important now? Hmm? Would you be important because now you're not just important, you're a VIP, aren't you? You're a very important person. Would you be, would your life have meaning and purpose to it? Sure, they'd have, you, they'd have all kinds of projects, meaningful projects for you to do, wouldn't they? There'd be people around all over. There'd be, there wouldn't be a church in this county that wouldn't want you to come and be part of their program. Did you know that? Why? You ever figure out what the tithe is on $90 million? <laughs> hmm? Sure, you're important. Sure, your life has meaning and purpose to it. How about adequate? Could you do anything you wanted to do? Sure, you could. You just buy it. With that money comes power and adequacy. Now, we all know, at least intellectually, we all know, that that money doesn't really meet our personal needs. But you see, we have been conditioned from the time we're born in this world, the time we grow up, we've been conditioned to trust that money for our worth. As a matter of fact, if I were to ask you, what is that man worth? What's the first thing to come to your mind? It wouldn't be, is he secure or significant? It'd be, how much money has he got in the bank, right? Because you see, we have based and connected our worth as persons to money rather than to Jesus. Now, there are many such illustrations, and we're going to be talking about those because it's important for us to understand that our worth as persons is based entirely upon our union with Christ. This is that hard saying that those disciples heard when Jesus fed the multitude, and they said, this is a hard saying. And I want to be point-blank honest with you now, not just with you here in the studio audience, but also especially you who are watching on video. I want you to be understanding that it's not what I say about your union with Christ that's going to convince you that, that you're worthy. It's the Holy Spirit who's going to break through the, all of the conditioning of your mind that's going to teach you 
that you are worthy based entirely upon what God has done for you that you couldn't do for yourself. You see, this is a hard saying, and no one can naturally receive this. This is not something you just naturally come to because we have been conditioned not only to trust money, but also to trust our jobs or trust our relationships with other people, trust our families, trust our own performance, trust our circumstances in life. We have been conditioned to trust everything except Jesus for our worth as persons. And so it's a hard saying when Jesus said, except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. What he was saying is just except I come into you and you are in me and we are one, you have no life. You have no security. You have no significance whatsoever. That's a hard saying for us to process. That's a hard saying for us to lay hold of and believe. That's a hard saying for us to live. I find it so, so normal in classes, in the Alpha classes that I teach, for all of us to believe that and say amen to that while we're in class. And as soon as we walk out the door, we forget it altogether. You see, understanding it and hearing it intellectually is one thing, but the kind of hearing that they were talking about when they said this is a hard saying is the kind of hearing the Bible usually talks about. And it's not just hearing, it's doing. It's not just talking the talk, it's walking the walk. This is what's hard. To base our worth on only Christ and what he's done for us as persons is the most difficult step of faith we'll ever take. And were it not for the grace of God, None of us, none of us would ever be able to receive this kind of statement. But on the other hand, when the Spirit works miraculously, marvelously, to convince us of the truth of that gospel, and he actually clicks that little light bulb in, and he actually brings to our awareness the spiritual reality and the truth that we are one with Christ, when that light bulb clicks on, there's no joy and satisfaction like it on the face of the earth. Nothing can take the place. Not winning the lotto with $90 million, not having other relationships, good relationships, not having other circumstances, not doing better. Nothing can truly satisfy our soul like the love and security that comes from being one with Jesus. Nothing can truly give us a sense of satisfaction like the joy that comes from being significant in our relationship with Christ. Now this is a very difficult thing for me to try to get across in words. And I can't rely on words to give this to you. It's something that has to be experienced. It's not something that I can just describe. My descriptions are totally inadequate. It's something that the Spirit of God has to teach you. I believe that Jesus is our classic example along this line. Jesus actually came to the place many times when he was threatened with his security and his significance. Living in a world just like ours, growing up in a world system very much similar to ours, he was continually threatened. His worth as a person continually under attack, just like ours. And Jesus, having humbled himself to become a man, to actually take on human form, had to struggle through the same things you and I do, to believe who he was. 
He had to struggle through the same things to believe that he was one with the Father. I love the story in his childhood. There's only one brief story mentioned in the scriptures concerning his childhood, and that's the story when he was 12 years old in the temple. And you recall that story, how every year his mom and, and stepdad, Joseph, would take them up with the family. The whole family would go to Jerusalem. And they'd be there for a feast. It's kind of like going on a week-long vacation for us. And they'd be there, and they'd all be seeing family members and having a good time and so on, worshiping God. And then they'd go home. And on the way home, because they moved in caravans, they were actually gone a day or so before they realized that Jesus was not with them. They thought perhaps he was out playing with John the Baptist or something. They didn't know they were cousins. And, or maybe he was over at Elizabeth's house. And, you know, he just he wasn't with them. Now, when they, like all parents, got worried about this and they went back to the temple, you recall Mary coming into the temple like a typical Jewish mama. Where have you been, Jesus? Don't you know that your father and I have been worried about you? Don't you know that your father and I didn't know where you were? And, we were, and I think when Jesus heard that word, Father, the Holy Spirit clicked the light bulb on in his mind because he instantly turned recorded for us in scriptures. And I think that we've been there to see the intensity in his eyes of a 12-year-old boy who had been discussing the scriptures with the learned religious men of the day for some two or three days to see that 12-year-old boy turn and look at his mother and say, don't you know I have got to be about my father's business. He wasn't talking about Joseph and being a carpenter. He was talking about his father in heaven. Don't you know I've got to be about my father's business? Jesus, at 12 years old, knew who he was. At 12 years old, he understood his security and his significance in being the Son of God. He understood he was secure in the Father's love because he knew who his Father was. And he understood that he was significant in the Father's plan for his life, which he had yet to live out. He understood completely his worth. Now, it's been said biblically by many expositors that Jesus never did sin. And I believe that. He never did sin. And the reason he didn't sin and become dysfunctional is because he never quit believing who he was. He constantly understood and believed who he was. But let's go to the temptation some uh, 15, 12, uh, 15 years later in his life when he began his public ministry. When he was 30 years old, after realizing who he was, at 12, he continued on in the family system that he was raised up in. And we have virtually no information about that, biblically. All we know is that he grew in stature and wisdom and favor with man and God. We know that he grew up like the rest of us have to grow up. We know that he experienced the hardships of being the elder brother in a large family. We know he must have, sometime during that time, taken on the responsibility of raising that family because his stepfather Joseph apparently 
was either killed or passed away sometime during that, that growth period in his life. But by the time he comes into his public ministry, the baptism of the Jordan River, when the Father declares who Jesus was, Jesus immediately, again, affirming who he was, was tempted concerning that one issue. In Luke chapter 4 and also in Matthew chapter 4, we have the story of the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And there he went into the wilderness and fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, he wasn't fasting there because he was trying to be religious. He was fasting because he didn't have time to eat. Because what he was doing for 40 days and 40 nights was fighting spiritual warfare with everything and everyone that Satan could throw against him to discourage him from his mission and his purpose, from his significance in his life. And after he had been fighting for 40 days and 40 nights, Satan himself appeared to Jesus to tempt him, and that's what's recorded for us in the Gospel accounts. But if you'll notice, I'll not take the time right now to turn to it, but if you'll notice in those, those accounts, you'll find that with every temptation comes this question, this statement that Satan made concerning his identity. Satan asked him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to be turned into bread. Minister to your own physical needs. Jesus, of course, responded to him and said, Man shall not live by bread alone, using the word of God as the sword of the Spirit. I'm not just going to trust my physical circumstances to make, make me worthy. I'm going to go beyond that and believe I'm worthy in spite of the fact I'm hungry and tired. Then he takes him up on a high mountain, or on the high place of the temple, rather, in Jerusalem. And there, standing up on that high place, I'm convinced that he was up there invisible to all the crowd below, but Satan, of course, who was with him, was not visible to the crowd below. And so it would, it would appear to be a man standing up on a high place, like on the edge of a building, and a crowd would begin to gather, wondering what this guy is doing up there, whether he's going to cast himself off or whatever. It's at that moment, as the crowd gathers, that Satan asks him, if you are the Son of God. You see what's being questioned there? Who are you? If you are the Son of God, then cast your feet off of this high place, because it is written. Now notice how Satan uses the Bible. I hope you folks realize that Satan uses the Bible. He probably knows it better than most of us, and he uses it usually to beat people up with. In this case, he was tempting Jesus. He said, it is written in the Psalms that God has given charge to his angels concerning your physical well-being lest you trip and sprain your ankle. So cast yourself off here and prove miraculously before all these people that you are the Son of God. And what Satan was doing there was tempting him to get his needs met by manipulating the crowd, by gaining the approval of others. Jesus, of course, again rebuked him with the word of God, saying that it is written not to tempt the Lord your God. And so he took him to a high mountain. And again, for the third time, he passed all the kingdoms of the world in front of his face in one moment. And for the third time, Satan said, If you be the Son of God, worship me. Bow down and worship me. Just give me a little respect, is really what he was saying. That's all I'm asking, a little respect. Jesus said, God and him only shall you worship. Now, what he was saying there 
is God and him only shall you trust for your worth. You see, folks, we worship whoever gives us worth. If it's money that gives us worth, we worship it. If it's a relationship with another person that gives us worth, we worship them. If it's our performance that gives us worth, we worship it. We worship the thing that gives us worth, that meets our needs. This is why Israel in the wilderness had so much trouble with those idol worship. And I always thought, how could they worship this little rock, this little piece of rock here? I mean, a funny little stone, they don't even look pretty. But you see, there were principalities and powers behind those idols that would minister to them or actually lead them astray by giving them temporal blessings if they would worship them, just like Satan was tempting Jesus to do. Now, let me summarize what we're talking about here. When we talk about the battle that Jesus had when he said, Satan, it is written you worship God and him only, and Satan left him for a season. He came back later to hassle him some more, but basically what I'm illustrating is how Jesus fought a battle to believe that he was worthy because of his relationship with the Father. Because Jesus was in the Father, he was worthy. Now what he's sharing with us is because we are in him, we're worthy. And just like Jesus fought a battle to believe he was worthy on a daily basis, so you and I have to fight a battle on a daily basis to believe that we are in fact secure in God's love. We are in fact significant in God's plan. In spite of what it looks like around us, in spite of what other people say about us, in spite of our own circumstances of life, we choose to believe that we are in fact worthy. In that regard, we can experience the gospel on a daily basis. We can experience the practical application of that gospel in our own lives. Now, one relational comment, and we'll close with this, that when you believe you're worthy, when you actually accept the fact of what God has done to make you worthy in Christ, then and only then are you now able to move on to those spiritual needs to love others like Christ. When you believe that you're worthy because of what God has made you to be, then and only then can you go on to actually care about somebody besides yourself. So it's of absolute essential importance that we learn to trust the Word of God and what He says about us to make us worthy. And the good news is that He's got a lot to say about us. The good news is He's got a bunch to say about what he's done to make you worthy. Thank you. The Lord bless you. Thank you again for listening. If you want more access to Alpha Ministries teaching, you can like us on Facebook, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and visit our website. All times and dates for services and other events are on our website listed in the show notes. 